It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots to do and we've got plenty of time in which to do it. We've got three hours kicking off with Isabel Oakshaw, uh, Talk TV's international editor. She's got plenty to say about the Dean Zahawi situation, about what's happening in Ukraine where it looks as though things are ratcheting up and Putin uh, is looking to do something next time uh, before these tanks arrive from the West, before these um, tanks come in from Germany, uh, before Zelensky starts rolling into areas of uh, uh, the Ukraine, which have been occupied by Russian troops for quite some time. We'll talk about that. But I want to kick off this morning, though, uh, with a sad story from the north of England, from Bolton, to be precise. Uh, a woman, uh, sorry, from uh, uh, from a place up near Manchester. Uh, Barbara Bolton is her name, 87 years of age, found by relatives unwell and alone in her freezing home. She was diagnosed with severe hypothermia. She was a widow. She was a great-grandmother. She was a woman uh, who used to work in a pharmacy. She lived in Bury. Uh, she'd been there for 40-odd years. She couldn't afford to heat her home. She couldn't afford to pay the bills that would make sure that she stayed warm enough so that she could actually stay alive. Her son, uh, called Mark, who's 61 years of age, says she was concerned about all her bills because she was a pensioner. She was careful and she was mindful of the prices and worried about them going up. Uh, she wanted to keep her heating on, but she just couldn't understand how she was ever going to pay the extenuating price of the bills that she was getting. She couldn't do it, and she's been declared dead as a tragic case uh, of energy poverty. That is in this country in 2023. She's a former news agent. She died of hypothermia. We're going to talk about that because, let's face it, the ordinary stories of ordinary everyday people is what we do here at Talk TV. Yeah, you can talk about uh, Nazim Zahawi. Yes, you can talk about the Tory party, what they're doing. Yes, you can talk about net zero and how fast we're going to get rid of cars that are made uh, from metal uh, and they are fired up on petrol and diesel. We can talk about all of that. But this woman, Barbara Bolton, is what makes this country go round. The people like Barbara Bolton who have lived in this country for a very long time. I think it's tragic, I think it's awful, and I think it's shameful that we have allowed this situation to occur. And there will be lots and lots of these situations going on. I spoke to somebody just the other week who rang into this show to say how terrified she was about a bill that she'd got for £2,000 for her energy. She didn't know how she was going to pay it, she didn't have the money, and she didn't think she could ever switch her heating on again. Absolutely awful, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk as well to Howard Cox about the latest ULES madness. One London borough now saying that they want to close off 75% of their roads to cars. 
Also, we've been told the government's target uh, for electric car charging uh, points is not going to be met by 2030. Uh, we're going to speak to um, Andrew Allison uh, from the Freedom Association. He'll tell us what he makes of everything that's been going on this week. And Rob Clark joins us as well. Uh, also, we're going to have a special visit from Eddie Temple Morris from Virgin Radio. He's doing a charity night, raising a load of money uh, for mental health. And it's Thursday, so we'll have the Thursday Club celebrating slightly late Burns Night, which was, of course, last night. So if you are in any way Scottish or would like to be, uh, you might be nursing a wee a bit of a hangover this morning. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the place to hear common sense, the place to be, because this is where we look at all of the big stories, not just the ones that you hear on every other news outlet, but also the ones, the stories behind the news, like this story uh, this morning about uh, Barbara Bolton, the 87-year-old woman uh, who died of hypothermia in modern Britain. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Let's talk to Isabel Oakshaw, international editor at Talk TV. Isabel, very good morning to you. We're going to talk about a great many things this morning. Um, but I'd like to ask you, first of all, about how this can be happening in a country which is supposedly the fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world, depending on who you talk to, a place where um, most people are just getting on with it and trying their best to make ends meet. But these are the kinds of stories that really become quite stark and, and are a real wake-up call, aren't they? I thank you so much for highlighting this story. I think it's hugely important. You know, these are the stories that humanise what sometimes otherwise can be reported a little as if it's some sort of academic mm. thing, you know, with all the figures and all the geopolitics of why our energy prices are as they are and who's to blame. Look, here's the consequence of it. And this is just one horrendous case, which is doubtless replicated in multiple areas, in multiple homes. I'm not saying multiple people are literally dying, but there are an awful lot of very cold, frightened elderly people and this seems to be a failure of so many things it seems to be a failure of all the support agencies we hear about you know you hear these nicey nicey adverts from the energy companies saying we're here to help you if you've got a problem i mean i have no doubt that if that poor elderly lady had rung one of those helplines first of all it's probably impossible mm. to navigate the whole call center system and secondly they probably would say some nice warm words but no actual warmth in the house mm. so it's a failure of that um it seems to me a rather a failure of neighborhood i mean i don't know where uh, this lady lived or what kind of neighbors she had um, but who was looking after her? Who was ensuring that things never came to this desperate pass? Mm. Uh, and you talked about, you mentioned Nadim Zahawi, and I've got to be in my bonnet about him, uh, because why does why does his attempt to worm his way out of a multi-million pound tax bill matter so much? Well, in this context, it is because we, the voters, see cabinet ministers trying to wriggle their way out of enormous tax bills, which means they have made enormous amounts of money while ordinary people literally freeze to death. And the Tory party leadership thinks this is a shrug, shrug, nothing to see here situation. It is absolutely disgraceful. Mm. 
It really is. And as I say, I mean, I had a call and there'll be lots of people in this situation. And, and you know, I understand what you're saying about the neighbours and, and she's got a son who's quoted in the story today. Um, but you know what? Very many of these women, particularly women, because they tend to live longer than the men, uh, are like. They're very proud people. They don't wish to ask for help. If you ask yeah. them how they are, they'll probably say, I'm fine. Um, she's described as sitting in a room where she didn't want to put the heating on because she was so worried that she couldn't afford it. And so, you know, they're very proud people. They quite often won't ask for help they won't make a phone call they won't say to their even their son you know that I'm feeling very cold today because they don't want to be a burden I mean even my own mother who's 98 years of age you know who has been through all sorts of things including the blitz when she was 17 in Clyde Bank you know she won't ever say that she's not feeling particularly well even when she isn't well and that generation don't do they I Mm. mean to my my own parents and you know my dad is no longer with us who had years and years of cancer, never said that he was feeling wretched. You know, it's just that generation that hold their heads high, they crack on, they do their best, and it isn't always in their own interests. Um, So I think this is a, a truly shocking case. And in a sense, I hope other cases come to light. Uh, we need to expose the reality of this. Um, You know, ordinary people, not just uh, elderly people on their own in in their homes, but ordinary people who who have jobs are also frightened to turn their heating on, even people with decent incomes. And the the reason is because they just don't know what the bill is going to look Mm. like. Uh, If you knew it was going to be £50 a week or £100 a week, you could budget for that. But it's that uncertainty, isn't it? Well, it is. And I think still many people of that generation, too, don't wish to be seen to be deadbeats. They don't wish to be seen to be people who can't afford something because they don't want any help. They don't want any handouts. But it's not clear to me what energy companies will actually do. You know, they keep saying, oh, uh, if anybody's in trouble, we will make sure that they uh, don't have their power cut off. Well, I'm sorry, that's not really good enough. I think they need to make it much clearer to people what they're supposed to do if they get a bill for 2000 quid, which they don't have. What happens next? Yes, I mean, you you had a case, didn't you, last week where you interviewed, very powerful interview with somebody who was so frightened Mm. about how how to manage that situation. Because what you get is a lot of very aggressive chasing letters, which are in nice red font to make sure that you can't possibly underestimate the gravity of this situation, Um, contain the usual threats about what happens if you don't pay. And somewhere in the small print at the bottom, perhaps it says, you know, ring us and we can have a nice chat about setting up a payment scheme. Uh, There's still a long way to go with this winter. You know, we're not even through January yet. We've probably got another couple of months where we may have some really difficult cold snaps. And we're going to see more of these tragedies, I think. I think that's absolutely right. Talking of winter, we're all seeing this morning lots of pictures from um, uh, Kiev, uh, where there's lots of activity, there's tanks going in, uh, um, President Zelensky's giving interviews talking about, you know, how this is the final push to uh, to beat the Russians, to push Putin back. There seems to be a general kind of international um, agreement now that there is never going to be a truce in this war and that basically Britain and other countries in the West, other NATO countries in particular, have to help uh, the Ukrainians to win the war? Well, it's heartening in a way that now we've got some nine countries agreeing to provide some of the type of military hardware that President Zelensky has been asking for. Uh, I mean, most countries 
don't actually have that many tanks, including ourselves. You know, we've got, I can't remember precisely how many, 140 or something, um, probably half of which aren't actually uh, fit for, for use at any one time with no great notice. Mm. Um, so, you know, the numbers that are being sent by individual countries are not great, uh, but the symbolism of it is enormous. Um, I think this is the most important story um, of the week. It, it really, you know, I, the papers are full of trans nonsense. I am so beyond sick <laughs> of debating trans issues. Yeah. Where we literally have a war in Europe. We've now got NATO getting engaged properly in that, or NATO member states, as it were. Um, and we are effectively at war with Russia. This is no longer just a, a Ukraine problem. It, in, in reality, it never was. Um, but we have got sucked into this. You know, many many commentators like uh, Tobias Elwood MP, who um, your colleague, our colleague Julia Hartley Brewer, had on her show um, an hour or so ago, would say this is way later. We should have got uh, much more actively engaged earlier. There are good reasons why we didn't. We can all understand that nobody wants World War Three, but now there's an acceptance that. This isn't going away. You know, P Putin, President Putin is not going to accept defeat. He's literally going to obliterate that country sooner than withdraw and say, well, this was all a disaster and I'm sorry. And, you know, let's come to some agreement. For their part, the Ukrainians, greatly to their credit, are not going to give an inch of ground voluntarily. So on and on it goes. Uh, and we have utter devastation. So, yes, it's good that the West has finally stepped up. Um, but a lot of people will be concerned about how long this commitment will go on for, the cost of it. Uh, and, you know, are we now entering into another kind of Afghanistan situation? Yes, because it, could it go on for decades? I suppose it, technically it probably could. We'll come back to that. Stay where you are as well. We're just going to take a short break. We've got to come back and talk about a great many other things as well as what's going on. I think there's some kind of NHS strike today. I can't remember who's on strike. Uh, perhaps you can help me uh, to work that one out. There's a picket line not a million miles away from our office here. Uh, and I think it must be the nurses, mustn't it? Who knows? This is Talk TV. Online on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Elizabeth Oakshaw, international editor here at Talk TV, uh, the place to be, the home of common sense, of course, and free speech. Isabel, uh, just before the break there, I was talking about a strike. I think we've discovered there's a bus strike going on, but these strikes are kind of so um, interminable now that it's almost as though we get on with everything despite whatever strike is happening and despite whatever is going on. I know you travel by train quite a bit. Have you? Uh, do you still travel by train? Have you given up? What's the situation? Well, look, I think that we, we all have this kind of fundamental acceptance that everything's a bit crap. And that yeah. basically the, the, the probability is that things won't work. So if anything works, that's that's a bonus. You know, it's not anymore um, the case that you assume things will work and you're unlucky if they don't. It's the reverse. If it works, happy days. But most likely it's going to be some kind of problem. Um, yeah, I don't know who's on strike anymore. There's this also 
looming thing, isn't there, at the beginning of February, a suggestion of a so-called general strike, which just means even more organisations striking and probably none of us will notice that much more difference because we know everything's rubbish anyway. Well, exactly right. <clears throat> I can happily inform you that uh, health and social care workers and physiotherapists are apparently uh, on strike today. And in some parts oh, of the country, bin, uh, bin men, bin staff are out and some teachers are also out. So there we are. Um, well, the rest for the rest of us who work for a living, uh, who haven't got the luxury of striking and haven't got the luxury of public sector pension, I'm afraid we'll just have to carry on uh, regardless. But speaking of the NHS, I was interested in one of your tweets yesterday about um, the excess deaths. When hundreds of people a week were dying with not of COVID, we shut down society. Now there are up to 3,000 mysterious excess deaths per week and the government is acting like there's nothing to see here. It is strange, isn't it? I actually think it's a lot more and worse than strange. You know these stories that kind of float around and you sort of as a journalist you're peripherally aware of them but you don't lock into every single story Mm. Um, and I have been peripherally aware that there is a a worrying situation with so-called excess deaths that means the number of people above the general average for this time of year per week that are dying Um, and I'd slightly sort of disengaged from this story until I uh, started looking properly at the figures And we have a situation now where as many as 3,000, just pause for a minute and think about that number, 3,000 extra people per week are mysteriously dying. Now, I say mysteriously not because there's some kind of conspiracy theory here, um, but because we actually don't know, because the government isn't really um, acting as if this is a particular problem uh, or, or indeed crisis. Uh, we don't know why those figures are so raised. Is it due to um, people who weren't seen properly during the COVID crisis when we turned the NHS into a COVID service? Is it due to um, the weather? I mean, there are any number of things uh, may be at play here. Uh, what is clear, though, is that this is a very, very serious situation. And, you know, remember the fuss when hundreds of people were dying, not of COVID, but with it. We actually shut down the whole of society for this. How come nobody's paying any attention now? I don't get it. Well, that is interesting, isn't it? And I mean, we talked last night about Matt Hancock getting sort of harangued and harassed on the tube. And we're going to look at that video again a little bit later on in the show. But yeah, I mean, the focus on the numbers of people dying was so out of proportion. I remember uh, being very shocked at the beginning of the COVID crisis to kind of look at how many people died anyway every single day. And it was quite a lot. And never did the number of people dying of COVID outstrip the number of people who were dying of all kinds of other things. But suddenly now, as you say... Uh, we're sort of being told, oh, don't bother about that. Just just look over there. And I don't really understand whether it's because the government are embarrassed by the way that they conducted themselves during COVID or whether they just really don't care about anything to do with health in any other area. Well, I think that there needs to be real political pressure um, for the government to properly examine what is driving these figures, Um, if only to shut down conspiracy theorists, because there's a lot of concern, and we can like it or not like it, there are concerns about vaccine damage and sudden deaths linked to the vaccine. And if those concerns are unfounded, well, let's get that out there. Let's reassure people um, that they're not going to suddenly drop dead. 
uh, that there isn't uh, an issue with the vaccine and actually these excess deaths are driven by something else. In a sense, it doesn't matter um, what it is that's that's behind it. That, you know, I'm not talking about attaching blame here at this point. It's a question of trying to tackle whatever it is that is sending these figures into orbit so that we don't have this going on for the next mm. few months stroke for the rest of the year because the figures are, are enormous. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I've heard can... people giving other reasons such as it's the baby boomer generation and actually because more people were born uh, in a particular period, they're now dying and that's why the numbers look higher, which sounds to me like a very bizarre and complicated explanation for Well, it should be very dying. simple to see the figures by age. Uh, yeah. It may well be that those figures are available, um, and it may be that if those figures are mainly people in their 80s and 90s, then we can all be a little bit reassured that those people are past their average life expectancy in any case. If there is a very significant spike in unexpected deaths amongst younger people, then I think that's a real cause for concern. How can mm. anyone say it isn't? Do you think we're living in a time when the, the, the sort of the politicians that are supposedly leading us, and I've used that very carefully because I'm not sure they are, um, don't really understand what the cares and the concerns of ordinary people are? You were talking earlier about Nadeem Zahawi and a vast amount of money that he made uh, in business, which is welcome. I'm sure that we'd love to see more people making that kind of money in business in this country. But, you know, it's hard to imagine how in touch with ordinary people like uh, the woman we were talking about, Barbara Bolton, who couldn't heat her home, um, hard to imagine how much in touch with ordinary people he is. And also hard to imagine that Rishi Sunak and the rest of the cabinet know that people care about this kind of stuff. They care about people dying. They care about the NHS. They care about not having enough money to feed their families. And yet the government doesn't seem to be addressing any of it. Well, government in this country is all too often about shambling through from one day to the next. Mm. You know, it's not they don't think very often um, medium term. It's as short term as it gets. This is a government that's absolutely run out of steam and is basically just trying to survive. And they think that parroting the phrase levelling up, which makes me want to frankly punch somebody, um, not yeah. advocating any violence here, I mean <laughs> metaphorically, um, that by, by talking about levelling up, that somehow ticks the box of, oh, you know, we recognise things aren't as good in other parts of the country as they are here in the Palace of Westminster. We're going to somehow level up by, as you say, Mike, building another ridiculously overpriced bridge over mm. something. Yeah. I mean, it's just a nonsense. I don't think those words mean anything whatsoever to ordinary people while they're shivering in their homes or contemplating an NHS that can't deliver. Um, and, you know, all the uh, evidence at this stage points to a catastrophic, historic defeat for this government when it finally faces voters at the polls. And I have to say right now, it feels like they deserve it. Yeah, I think most people would probably agree with that. Uh, Isabel, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakeshott there, uh, international editor here at Talk TV, uh, making a great deal of sense about a great many things. Dan in Epsom is disgusted. He says, you've got old Britons dying of the cold, afraid to put the heating on, paid tax their whole lives, yet hundreds of thousands of unwanted people arriving on our shores, getting free accommodation, free money, free food, phones. Absolutely disgusting. He says, P.S. I can't ever get through. We're very busy these days now, but do keep trying. We'll see if we can get you on. Uh, this is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. Loads more coming up. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on. We're going to be watching Rosie Duffield coming up a little bit later on today. Uh, she was on with Piers Morgan last night, Labour MP, of course, who has been given no end uh, of uh, horrible, horrible abuse from not only uh, people outside the Labour Party, but people inside the Labour Party, uh, calling her a turf, uh, threatening her life, causing her uh, to have to get extra security. Uh, she's been um, threatened with death threats for the rest of time uh, all over the place. Let's have a quick look at what she said to Piers Morgan last night. We're a very nepotistic party, I'm, mm. I'm finding out. I, I guess the others are as well. I don't, I can't speak on that. But you're surrounded by the same people, the same activists, the same people who are on the NEC or the boards of this, that and the other. You're just hearing the same voices. But when you see the leader of the party, Sir Keir Starmer, unable to say whether people with penises are women, what was your reaction? I, I speechless, really. I mean, it just seems kind of mad. You know, it's dystopian. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. Half the time, it sort of seems funny. Half the time, it's really scary. Rosie Duffield, Labour MP, will talk to Andrew Allison coming up a little bit later on from the Freedom Association about that. But right now, uh, let's talk about another war, and that's the war on the motorists. Because don't worry, uh, if you thought it was safe to get back into your car and drive around, it isn't. Because let's face it, Life is getting more and more difficult. There's a piece on the front page of the Times today which says electric cars fail to spark charge point revolution. Ministers are likely to miss their 2030 target of installing 300,000 electric car chargers uh, in 20 years. Uh, well, hardly surprising, is it? Worse than that, we've got the ULES expansion all around London. Yesterday, it got even more mad when one particular council, Labour run, of course, uh, in a place called Hackney, very trendy, uh, full of virtue signalling champagne socialists, right? Apparently, what they're going to do is make it impossible for people to drive in 75% of the roads in that particular borough. Let's talk to Howard Cox, founder of Fair Fuel UK. Howard, very good morning to you. Good morning, Michael. So, um, just when you thought these nutters couldn't get any more nutty, um, they've now actually decided to make it the sort of People's Republic of Hackney um, and ban anyone who wants to drive a car there. Well, it's it's, it's astonishing. It's ha it's happening across the country. You know, we've got it in Oxford, we've got it in Canterbury, we've got it in lots of places, etc. And, of course, we've got it in the whole of London regarding the expansion of the ULED zone. The driver is seen as an easy cash cow, a, a piece of vermin that needs to be eradicated. Mm. That's the way we feel as drivers. And uh, I spent a lot of time yesterday in Port Cullis House, which is the, the home of where the... Uh, our beloved um, uh, elected leaders sit and debate and meet, etc., mm. outside of the House of Commons. And I, I, I spoke to Sir Keir Starmer. Um, I managed to speak to him for about Blimey. five minutes. Lucky old yeah. you. Yeah, I, well, yeah. but actually, Mike, he, 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 I've always said he's a, he's a nice bloke off air, if you yeah. see it for me. Um, but, and I said to him, because he's just received a thousand emails from our supporters who were excluded from the consultation process, you know, that, that this so-called democratic approach that, uh, you know, that six out of 10 people didn't want the expansion, yet it was still being introduced on in August by uh, Sadiq Khan. Mm. And I mm. said to him, look, surely, because he was criticising Zahawi being dishonest, etc. Well, I said, what about uh, you talking about Sadiq Khan? He's being dishonest. He's taking votes out. He's, he's manipulated the whole consultation pro uh, process and he's gone against a democratic consultation process. What do you say to that? And he was flummoxed. <laughs> And well, he's least. often flummoxed. I mean, that's the problem. He's all very well being a nice bloke. I'm not really interested in how nice he is. I'm interested in what no. he's going to do. Um, and one, he can't identify what a woman is. Two, he doesn't know what to do about uh, Sadiq Khan, who's a little rogue mayor running around uh, who wanted to be leader of the Labour Party, now doesn't look like he's going to be able to do it. Um, but here we have a situation where you've literally got um, almost independent councillors 
uh, making decisions about ordinary people's lives, which they shouldn't be making. You know, this is not local policy. You know, when you talk about cities like Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds and London, you know, these are massive, uh, you know, trade hubs. They're massive transportation networks. They're part of something. They're not just isolationists. You can't just go, well, you can't drive anywhere near the river because obviously that would be harmful to the water quality or something. You know, that's, that's not a decision that they can make. No, you're absolutely right. Spot on. This is these are people that are supposedly elected to actually represent the good uh, aspects of the your community, i.e., the economy. Mm. Uh, what they're trying to do, they're actually making it into and, and our cities are under a siege. I'm just putting together a, a, a piece for the Sun, and it's going to be this: our cities are under siege. And and yesterday I met with Keith Prince. Mm. Yeah, I think you know Keith. Keith, yeah. great guy. He's a GLA, a, a Tory assembly member, and he represents the transport side of the Tories in London. And he, he said it's unbelievable what is happening in, in City Hall under Sadiq Khan's re- regime. No one can speak up against him. No one can actually do mm. anything about it. He even denied that he, he actually saw the details of that consultation result for six times. Right. He, he, and I'm, I can say this, I know you can't say it, but he's truly a liar. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And I'm afraid... People are bombarding me, Mike, with people that say this guy's got to go. Mm. It's not good for our capital city. He's destroying, uh, along with a lot of local uh, authority councillors, as you just mentioned, in Hackney, uh, in Haringey. Uh, there's loads of the people who are doing exactly the same thing. They're trying to get rid of the drivers. But guess what? In Hackney, they got £19 million worth of fines last year. Yeah, I mean, what are they going to do about that? Well, maybe they'd like to make it £39 million. But last week, uh, he made it onto Plank of the Week, Sadiq Khan, again. I think he's been on it every single week, uh, pretty much since the inception of the show three years ago. But for this yeah. week, it was because he actually said in a London Assembly question time meeting that the Tory party doesn't care about the health oh. of children. And they're quite happy to watch them die because of the pollution. I saw a sign uh, on the roads yesterday driving across town that said, please only drive if it's absolutely necessary due to the bad air quality. Well, the bad air quality is due to the congestion in the city, which has entirely been caused by the completely bizarre makeup of the streets now. Well, I, I spoke to Susan Hall about exactly that because she was in that uh, debate and she actually stood up for the Tories. How dare you actually say yes. that we don't care about the health of our children? And and, and she's absolutely right to say that. Um, I, I, fundamentally, what's happening at the moment in time is the government can actually do something about this ultra-low emission zone I- expansion. Um, the, the thing about yesterday, the fog and all the things about saying you shouldn't drive, if, if, if you, what, what about cyclists? They're, they're cycling in it. Yeah. Are, they, are they expendable, Mr Khan? Yeah. What, 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 what do you, it's completely mixed messages. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. But also, the government- I mean, maybe, maybe what he needs is a lesson in weather, you know, because fog <laughs> isn't actually caused by pollution. Fog is actually caused by a change in the temperature. You know, it's got something to do with barometric pressure. Maybe he needs a lesson in that. Well, I, 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 I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember smog. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry that <laughs> we, our towns are clean and they're great. This whole myth about 4,000 people are dying uh, every year because of the air pollution. It, well, it, it's, it's fiction. And I noticed that uh, I think on, the sh- uh, on Julia's show this morning, uh, a medic, I think, or a professor of medicine actually did say that apparently the health minister was challenged last week in the House of Commons to say, um, you know, we shouldn't be actually... Uh, uh, talking about 4,000 deaths, where's your proof? Mm. And I'm, I think Steve Barkley's number two simply turned around and said, well, it is happening, let's move on to the next question. Yeah, It's being dismissed. It is, of course it's been dismissed. But don't worry, because uh, Labour have got another bozo who's come up with another great idea, David Lammy, uh, a man oh, yeah. who does a show on another station, which we don't talk about. Uh, he apparently said yesterday that 
building workers and workmen and window cleaners and tradesmen and plumbers and all sorts of people who uh, have blue collar jobs should not actually drive at all, that they should take <laughs> their stuff on a train. Uh, they should take all of their gear on a public uh, transport. So, um, you know, you've got people with ladders, people with buckets, yeah. people with huge you know, pieces of equipment are supposed to drag that around on the tube if they're lucky enough that they're not on strike. Well, absolutely. I mean, Henry Riley, who was the actual person, I won't mention the station, but he actually contacted me about it the day before. Yeah. Uh, and it comes back to the same thing that I said before. In an interview with Sakir Starmer, do you support Saadi Khan? He said, yes, I do. And, 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 and Sakir said to me, we're doing well in London. We're voting a position. We're growing in London. I said, you may be in the centre of London, but not in Greater London. I promise you that. You'll be annihilated yeah. out there. Yeah, well, they're doing well in Putney, you know, home of the Volvo, uh, the Range Rover and the Champagne Socialist. That's where they're doing well. But working people will no sooner vote Labour than they'll throw themselves into the river off Tower Bridge because they know that they don't get represented properly because they know that um, I've, I've seen a guy who runs an ice cream van company saying that this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. New rule that they've put in for you, Les, but also uh, the more localized one in Hackney will ruin them. They won't be able to operate anymore. They'll be out of a job. The business will fail, and that'll be more people on the dole heap. Well, I'm trying to actually put together an, an, a true calculation of the impact on businesses, particularly white van men and small businesses. Those sorts of people that are, you know they are being asked to pay twelve pound fifty to come in just to find out they haven't got the job because you know the quotation system, the way they work, they actually try and price a job. Oh, you didn't get it. Okay, but it's cost you twelve pound fifty to find that out. Yeah, and, and that's the sort of thing. But I'm actually putting something together and working with a couple of economists on that at the moment, and I hopefully will come back to you in the next couple of weeks. But I think you'll find it is serious. Serious, serious hundreds of millions of pounds. No, I'm sure you will, and we look forward to that. I look forward to your piece in the sun as well, Howard. Thank you very much indeed. The fight goes on. Uh, founder of Fair Fuel UK. But as we've been doing all this week, it's a war on woke this. It's not just about whether it's transport, whether it's NHS health, whether it is picket lines, whether it is probation services, whether it is the police. The wokists have taken over the world, right? And this is where the fight back begins because there's no way uh, that anything can be sensible or run properly as long as the wokists are in charge because all they care about is ticking boxes. All they care about is looking good in front of their mates. All they care about uh, is making sure that when somebody asks them if they've done the right thing and they can sleep well at night, that's what they can say that they did, even if they haven't. But they don't care about you. They don't care about working people. They don't care about those who pay taxes so that they can all have jobs in the public sector. They care not a jot about that. But what they do care about is making your life miserable, getting more money out of you, taking more taxes from you and ruining your life. Why? Because they think they're doing a good thing. 
They are literally deranged, these wokists. We've got to fight them. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Yeah, so apparently there is a physio strike going on today. Um, I've got quite a few of you uh, with some views on that. Bob says, I was offered physio over the phone once from my GP's physio department. True story. Well, I mean, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Um, You can't get uh, a face-to-face physio appointment, of course, because that might be somehow dangerous. It might be uh, difficult for you not to get COVID under those circumstances. Um, Sam says this, the NHS physio is going on strike. It will make no difference when you attend to C1. All they do is give you a piece of paper of what to do. They say they cannot physically touch you or help you. So what is the actual point? It's a good point. Uh, And here's another one uh, from um, Jackie. Well said, Mike. We have to fight back because we cannot vote our way out of this mess because main parties are the same. The people are sovereign and we will not accept this authoritarianism which is taking over the country. Well, I think that is the problem. I mean, all this week we've been conducting this kind of war on woke. We've been talking about the probation service, the police, uh, the border force, the NHS. Uh, Now we're hearing about recycling centres in places like Greenford where nobody cares what you do. They don't care to help you. They don't care what you're dumping there. Um, Everything just sort of goes on automatic pilot. Well, let's talk to Brendan O'Brien, former inspector of the Greater Manchester Police, founder of Blue Light Police, because we found out this week, did we not, that there was yet another problem with the Metropolitan Police. One particular individual uh, was found guilty. He completed guilty, in fact, of having sex with an underage girl. He was put into a school as a liaison officer, ended up having sex with a 14-year-old girl. We also had Sir Mark Rowley yesterday saying that two or three Metropolitan Police cops themselves will appear in court on criminal charges every single week and mostly the charges will refer to uh, problems with uh, women violence against women sexual assault that kind of thing these people are in the police i don't understand how it's possible to have so many rogue officers we're now hearing an awful lot of people saying maybe we should just disband the metropolitan police and start again brendan a very good morning to you good morning mate good morning we seem to have reached kind of peak um police problems don't we i mean every single week now there's another story uh, we said uh, we saw mark rowley talking this week uh, saying basically it's going to be a long process we've lifted the stone up we're now seeing more cases of of individual police officers who are going to be committing some terrible acts i don't think it's acceptable for him to say that um and to sort of somehow soften up the public so that we can expect more cases like wayne cousins more cases like david carrick yeah, I think it's a, an absolute crisis in policing, and I'm not the only one saying that. There's chief constables out there saying that this time now is a time where we're facing a crisis in legitimacy. If people can't trust the police, um, then we are going to lose our place in terms of that legitimacy, that trust. Uh, our whole model of policing in this country is based on um, policing by consent. And if we lose that consent, we're in trouble. Yeah, I think that's right. But what do you say to those who suggest that the London um, police operation is now no longer so so not fit for purpose that it needs to be completely revamped? I don't even know how you would do that, but I've heard a couple of pundits talking about using the example of uh, the RUC and the police service in Northern Ireland as an example of how they managed to change something pretty much overnight. Well, I don't think it happened overnight uh, with the um, Royal Ulster Constabulary's journey to the police service of Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that's a different challenge. That was a completely different challenge. The one thing I'd say is that I don't think this problem is just in the Met. You know, if, if you Google the name of any police force and put in the word misconduct after it, it will bring up other examples of officers who have committed crimes, 
who have committed acts of gross misconduct, who are being dismissed. And I think it's a really good thing that that's happening more now. You know, they are being pulled out, they're being caught. But for me, you know, we talk about the bad apples. I'm just wondering whether those bad apples could have been caught a lot earlier. And this isn't the, this isn't something new. This has been something that's been building up ahead of steam, I think, for decades now. Yeah, absolutely right. And what is it, do you think, that's gone wrong? I mean, we've heard a lot of different re- reasons as to why the recruitment process has been somehow made easier for people to get in. Uh, we heard just the other day that people are not even interviewed in person anymore, uh, that it's more about getting a sort of quota of diversity going on rather than hiring the right sorts of people. I mean, has this been going on, this malaise, for a long time, as far as you know? Well, I don't think there's a sort of a, a, a quota of diversity that forces the working towards, but... What COVID did is it enabled uh, the police service to come up with a online assessment. So officers were assessed online without any form of human contact. Now, what most forces did is they backed that up with a good hour's worth of questions face-to-face via Zoom or Teams, where they would ask questions about values, motivation, what you expe- expect the role to involve, how would you deal with this type of situation, and they'll give them some kind of conundrum that involves a vulnerable person, So they really tested their ethics and tested their values, and a lot of forces out there are doing that, and they've been doing that for a long time. Um, Whereas other forces decided for whatever reason, I suspect it may be because they've got recruitment targets to hit, that they weren't going to do that at all. So West Midlands Police is an example. Uh, One of my clients, and I I support people in the process, um, fed back to me that the hardest question he was asked by a real person until the day he joined was, what's your inside leg measurement? Mm. Now, I think there's something desperately wrong with that. I've been saying that for a long time. Um, it's uh, I can't believe that chief officers are okay with recruiting people without actually asking them any questions mm. at all about their background, motivation or values. Now, I find it impossible to know how that can work because I don't know of any other job that you could apply for and get without having those kind of questions asked. And, 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 and I'm not talking about jobs which involve sort of, you know, security or, uh, or in any, any, any other form of, of, you know, safety for people. But a recruitment consultant told The Times uh, this week that physical test and uniform fitting are the only stages at which some applicants would even meet other members of the force. So, I mean, again, this kind of working from home thing has probably kicked in where an awful lot of people are doing investigative work without going out. Well, it was me who said that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was the person who said that in the Times. Um, yeah, I, I, I think there lies a... I know that some chief officers have actually fed back to me. I've had conversations with them where they've said, well, it's about appetite for risk. And I think that risk is... Too, I've always believed it's a, a, a too great a risk to take. You know, if you recruit the wrong sort of person, one, they could end up being a carrick at the far extreme, but... Two, you might have them for 30 plus years and they can cause untold damage in communities, Mm. untold damage to individuals because they just don't deal with them properly. And in terms of the financial costs, a police officer is going to cost, one police officer is going to cost throughout their whole career, together with their pension, over £2 million. Mm. Now, if this was Dragon's Den, do you think you'd be able to get £2 million million (laughs) off of this by saying... I've done the online test. Mm. You don't need to speak to me. Just give me the two million pounds. And while this focus, and while this focus is on, you know, the 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 sort of conduct of the police and the um, uh, and the rogue police officers that keep being found, 
what we are not talking about is the woeful uh, arrest rates, the woeful conviction rates on almost every single kind of crime. You know, we've seen burglaries not being solved. We've seen, you know, the rape convictions, obviously, for all sorts of reasons, very, very low indeed. You know, if your car gets nicked, you've got no chance of even talking to a copper, uh, never mind getting the car back. If your bicycle gets stolen, all of that. You know, we're in the grip of a sort of crime wave. Um, public order offences up, you know, sexual assaults up dangerous streets of Britain, you know, now more than ever. And yet the police are arguing with un amongst themselves about, you know, why they can't do anything worth a fag end. Well, I'm not quite sure if that's it. I mean, I, I've got to come from a position where I was a police officer. Um, I still work within the sector. I, I, I love the police and I, I think they do an amazing job. And I think one of the big problems is 12 years of cuts comes with a price and the police are the safety net, you know, probably about 80 to 85 percent of everything the police do has no no relation to crime whatsoever they're dealing with vulnerable people they're picking up the pieces of systems that are completely fallen apart with mental health services vulnerable people uh, missing from homes uh, people who are missing from care homes uh, and it's one of the primary uh, functions of the police is to protect life so they're doing their job, but 80% plus of their time is spent dealing with incidents and issues that have no bearing at all on crime. So I think there's an important question here. What do we actually want our police service to do? Yeah, but What's part of that problem, though, presumably, um, is the fact that they're told to do that, Brendan. So by the people that manage the police, by the people that run the police, they've taken that decision, haven't they? They're not being told what to do by government because they're being told what to do by their own sort of orders of, of, uh, of, of whatever the, the, the sort of the, the, the line of duty is, if you like. You know, you've got the chief uh, inspector, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, now doing what Cressida Dick wasn't doing, uh, which is sorting out what's going on inside the police force. So when Cressida Dick was in charge, obviously she was giving a different set of instructions. Well, chief officers have a lot of autonomy, and, and, and that's, the, that's the model of British policing that we have, and I think it's one that we can be quite proud of. They can be influenced and nudged by government, but ultimately there are some things that the police service have to do and police officers have to do. They, they, they swear an oath to do this, that they're going to protect life and protect property. So at four o'clock in the morning, when a 14-year-old child who's vulnerable decides that they're going to leave the care home that they're in, and the care home staff don't have the capacity to go and find them and that they're at risk of harm of sexual assault towards them of being um drawn into organized criminality who's going to pick up those pieces there's well, no chief officer that's going to say don't do that because no of course not no of this course is not. a young person who's vulnerable who needs help and there's no other agency out there the, the police are the agency of last resort yeah. 12 years of cuts is always going to have a price tag. You know, if you reduce the number of police officers and give them more demand because of the issues in other sectors, you are going to face a problem at some point, and now we're facing that problem. Well, very possibly so, but you've also got the paramedics who say the same thing. They say they're the, the people that get asked to do those kinds of jobs as well, and that's one of the reasons why they want a pay rise. So there's a lot of people arguing about all sorts of things, but what I do know is whenever you do need to have a large number of police to police an event, there's always room and money for that. So, you know, you can find plenty of police officers when they're required by some particular organisation to do that or if they have to be used at a football ground or something like that. You know, again, a bit like the NHS, it's all a question of priorities, presumably, and a question of who pays the piper calls the tune, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, that's a difficult job. You know, I don't, I don't uh, envy any chief officer at the moment having to balance out the need to save and protect vulnerable people from harm, which is the primary function of the police service versus delivering good service around crime. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of police officers are just completely burnt out and the morale is so poor. Uh, I know there's a, the, you, you can roll out all sorts of ministers saying that actually police officers uh, think it's a great job. Um, you know, they intend to stay for the rest of their careers. I heard the policing minister talking about that yesterday, but that's not what I hear. I hear officers who are absolutely on their knees. They're desperate to do a good job. Mm. Well, we get told that everybody's on their knees at the moment. Every Everybody in the public sector apparently is on their knees. We never hear that anybody in the private sector is on their knees. So, you know, maybe they've just been recruiting the wrong people. People going into nursing who didn't expect it to be horrible. People going into policing who didn't expect it to be tough. You know, I mean, it's not that difficult to work out why there's a problem. And it's not mm -hmm. always about money, is it? Because the money is there, but it's just not being spent properly. And if, you, yeah. if you're going to sit there and tell me that burglary rates of, of something like 6% of being solved is something that's worthwhile, it's not, is it? No, it's not. It's, it's not acceptable. Neither is the rate conviction rate. That's not acceptable. There's a lot of things about the public sector, I think, at the moment that are unacceptable, not just the police. Yeah. But going back to, you know, do, do they understand it's a tough job? Well, most forces who actually ask the questions at an interview will ask questions like, what do you think the impact of this is going to be on your personal life? Mm. And when they just say, I'll have, to miss, I'll have to miss some parties and I'll have to work shifts, they're not getting at the point and they'll, they'll get failed for that because yeah. they don't really understand the realities. But for the forces out there who just aren't asking any questions, unless it's, unless it's what's your inside leg measurement, mm. and the policing minister yesterday tried to suggest that, well, they do have to get questions that they're medical. Well, it's not the doctor's job to ask questions about your values and your motivation. No. I mean, please. Uh, even the Somerset police are saying that, well, we, we, we have a familiarisation event where, where, you know, we can ask them questions. At that familiarisation event, you can sit there and dream of your last holiday. And the hardest question you're going to get asked is, has anyone got any questions? Yeah. And there's, there's other forces saying, well, we ask them questions in the physical, in the physical test. Yes, you do. The question is, do you understand the instructions for the physical test? And yeah. the answer is yes. Yeah. These just disingenuous cop-outs. Right. But this not is my point. Get, I think we're kind of saying... The same. The heart I think, of what... Yeah, I think we're kind of saying the same thing, Brendan. We've got to run. I think you're right. I mean, there's clearly something wrong with the way that it's all being run. And that's my point, that you can't just keep blaming everything on a lack of money or a lack of funding or a lack of government will. In the end, the people that run the NHS, that run the police, that run the fire departments, that run uh, the paramedics, that run everything in the public sector are not doing it very well. That is the problem. And that's what needs to change, it seems to me. Uh, 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take some calls next. On your mobile, on your wavelength, talk radio and talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock when it's going to be time, of course, uh, for Ian Collins. He'll take you through until four. Uh, Vanessa Feltz reports till seven. And then it's Jeremy Carl live. I'll be back on there tonight uh, with the great man uh, talking about a great many things, I'm sure. Uh, somehow uh, the police will come up. Somehow the wokists will come up. Uh, the war on woke that we've been conducting all this week will continue. Uh, we've got Plank of the Week coming up at seven o'clock tomorrow. Piers Morgan at eight tonight as well. And the talk, of course, from nine. Uh, right now, though, uh, before we get to uh, a couple of big things at the end of the show, which include a bit of a Burns night drink because Helena Nicklin is here uh, one day late. But never mind, uh, not a dollar short because, uh, of course, we didn't do Burns night yesterday. 
uh, we will do it today. A bit of whiskey may be involved. We'll also be talking to Eddie Temple Morris from Virgin Radio, who's doing a great um, charity night uh, all about mental health, all about protecting uh, your own situation. It's be star-studded, and we'll find out what that's all about as well. Right now, though, uh, let us talk to Rob Clark, Defence Security Director at Civitas. Rob, welcome back. Nice Morning, to see Mark. you. Uh, lots to talk about in Ukraine, obviously. But before we get to that, let's talk about a piece in the Times uh, that ran uh, earlier this week about how 40 universities in this country, many of them from the uh, Russell Group, which is the sort of uh, the big group of what we would regard as, uh, you know, the old traditional proper, very, very important universities, um, collaborating with institutions that have been linked to malign activities, it says, of the Chinese state, including uh, organisations linked to the Uyghur genocide. Mm. How is this happening? It's quite bizarre, and it's a fantastic investigation by the by the Times. Um, it builds on research that we conducted at Civitas last year, um, and that's really the sort of uh, the relationships between not just British, but in this instance, British uh, institutions, universities, research centres. Um, and technology businesses uh, with uh, with the Chinese with the Chinese government, and mm. when we say the Chinese government, it's really sort of the Chinese defense industry. So big defense conglomerates, yeah. um, big tech companies which are owned by the Chinese government. Uh, it's all state run, um, and the defense links universities as well. Now, often these Chinese defense entities, uh, I'll use the defense universities as an example. The seven in particular, they're called the Seven Sons of National Defense, and they are absolutely ingrained into the Chinese militarization program. So, right. for example. China's nuclear program, the hypersonics weapon development, um, and often on the lower end of that spectrum, we're talking about things like surveillance infrastructure and telecommunication systems. Mm. Now, often these surveillance systems and telecommunication systems, which are developed by these universities working with British entities, right. uh, they're often used in the what we're calling the Uyghur genocide. So, for example, the uh, the police state and the security state, which is in uh, Xinjiang province in the west of China, mm. which are uh, persecuting the Uyghurs. So they're responsible for things like the security systems, the cameras, um, and the the like. I say the police state that's basically um, discriminating mm. against them in a, in a quite barbarous way. Um, so we've got these British entities, these British universities. You mentioned the Russell Group universities, um, Surrey, I think in particular, uh, Kent, um, and uh, and Nottingham and Birmingham as well, to name a few. Um, and even not even just Russell Group universities, other universities as well have been involved in this. And they're basically sort of collaborating in a way which is presumably commercially viable, commercially useful. Absolutely. They're making money, in other words, out of it. Absolutely. It's all about, it's all about the funding. Yeah. So there is a strain, obviously, on British higher education and universities to chase the funding. Uh, I appreciate that. However, there is an absolute wholesale lack of due diligence uh, and transparency mm. when it comes to a, a large amount it's more than 40 british universities uh, taking chinese money you can you can find the links you can draw the parallels to the uh, the chinese mm. state and these companies and these defense entities it takes moments of online research open source uh, research to find these links it's not hard right. um, and it's quite shocking and is it not the case that there would be sort of international um, i don't know safeguards or agreements mm. in place to stop certain commercial ventures from going on you know like for example you wouldn't be able to do business with some uh, Iranian government uh, yes. operations or some Russian government operations. I mean, can you just do any business that you want with China? Well, with China, uh, yes, you can, to, to put it uh, bluntly, with the US. So the US have sanctioned uh, under, uh, when it was Donald Trump as president, um, sanctioned a lot mm. of Chinese defence entities. There's hundreds listed on the US State Department's 
uh, website. Now, often these sanctions against the Chinese universities, for instance, uh, which Britain are working with, um, they're for things like, again, their involvement in nuclear weapons proliferation, um, hypersonic weapons technology research, mm. and the Uyghur genocide. Now, currently, the UK government don't have such uh, laws in place to prohibit British entities doing similar. Yeah. Um, but make no mistake, the, the the vast majority of these Chinese entities are subject to US uh, and in some cases actually EU uh, sanctions for, for, for trading with, for instance. And um, the biggest threat really is almost the technology transfer as well. So when we partner with these research institutions and universities, the threat, the risk of the technology transfer going from the Chinese defence entity, which may be using it for defence purposes themselves, right. handing it over to the Chinese government mm. uh, is, is absolutely paramount. And we aren't doing enough to sort of stop that. Well, they're one and, one and the same, more or less, aren't they? I mean, most oh, Chinese I, I commercial yes. entities are backed by the government, yes. or else they wouldn't be given licences to operate in other countries. And we've talked before about uh, the importance of Chinese money buying uh, its way into sort of chairs mm. uh, of various universities, you know, various development parts of those of those organisations, various um, research sections of those mm. organisations as well. What are they getting out of it as far as the Chinese are concerned? What are the government getting out of it? So China are really at a, a sticky wicket with regards to some of the more destructive ends of the technology uh, scale. So, for example, in particular, semiconductors. Mm. Um, again, they're under immense... Uh, US sanctions. So the, the, the semiconductor market is uh, pretty much um, 95, 96% uh, controlled by the US mm. and Taiwan. Right. O- for obvious reasons, Taiwan uh, companies and semiconductors aren't going to be trading with the US, uh, with China, sorry, uh, and, and the US. Mm. So um, uh, China are really sort of trying to um, uh, hoover up, if you like, uh, any willing uh, commercial or research uh, partner uh, internationally to sort of fill those gaps. Mm. Super, uh, super chips, uh, semiconductors, sorry, it's just one example of those. Yeah, semiconductors, I'm told, were part of very much what Ukraine's business was. Because I remember when I was talking to people who were involved in the car business, an awful lot of German cars used their mm. semiconductors, which were manufactured in Ukraine, which mm. has caused an awful lot of cars made in Germany not to be made. So there's been a real knock-on effect to to, uh, to the kind of the car business because of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a good example of the reverberations of the, the Ukrainian conflict past mm. war in Europe and the casualties. Uh, and it's this idea of sort of supply chain uh, reliance on very very niche markets. Ukraine is one. Uh, the uh, you know the the rare minerals and deposits. Uh, there's there's large mines. Some of the largest mines in the world are in the Donbass, which is mm. obviously scenes of the heaviest fighting in Ukraine. Right. Um, but no, it's a perfect example of sort of how reliant we are, uh, troublingly so, uh, on these very very niche markets. Yeah. And how have you seen developments this week? Because obviously the main kind of I suppose focus politically was on Germany mm. and whether or not they were going to help supply the tanks. Poland was asking if they could send their tanks, which they got from Germany, into Ukraine. It seems as though that agreement has now finally been uh, been made. However, how quickly it all happens and how soon um, uh, President Zelensky gets what he wants to form another kind of offensive against the Russians, it's not that clear. No, the timescales are actually quite tight for this. So the first hurdle was the political and diplomatic manoeuvrings, which... Um, I have to say the UK were absolutely leaders in. You know, we announced the Challenger 2s uh, sort of almost two weeks ago now, and that was really a political pressure to place on on Germany and, mm. and the US. Uh, and the, the prize for Ukraine, for Zelensky, is, is the Leopard 2s, mm. uh, not just Germany's, but uh, mainly the collective Leopard 2s in, in Europe. Yeah. At, at current rate, it looks like there's going to be between 100 and 150 uh, released from European 
uh, fleets. Now, the German leopards or the German manufactured leopards, they should be arriving in Ukraine uh, by sort of late March. Mm. So in time for this spring offensive by Ukraine. Um, the British Challenger 2s, they should be around the same time as well. Interestingly, the Challenger 2s from Britain, they don't have far to go. They're going to be the ones based currently either in Poland or Estonia yeah. as part of our enhanced forward presence to NATO. So they don't have long to travel, neither did the European ones. The Americans, the American M1 Abrams, um, which are being sent from America, there's a lot of retrofitting and remanufacturing that the Americans quite wisely mm. are going to be doing. They're going to be taking off their sensitive armour, which I'm not told that we're doing, which is... That's a separate concern. Um, but then to be remanufactured and then sent over, um, we're, we're looking at at least sort of seven to eight months lead time for the US tanks to be in theatre. Um, so that's almost like a second tranche, so towards the end of the year. Right. But it's really the German manufactured Leopards. Um, now, a lot of people have underplayed the significance that the Leopards are going, or the tanks themselves are going to have in the counter-offensives um, by Ukraine. Um, it will be interesting to see the effect they have, particularly the Challengers. Um, the Challengers are far superior to the, to the Leopards um, based on armour um, and, uh, and their sort of improved survivability on the battlefield. But again, there's huge questions to be raised about the British tanks, the sustainability, there's only 14, where are they yeah. going to get the spare parts from? Um, it, and some of them are quite old, aren't they? Uh, I mean, Challenger 2, Challenger 2 has been in service since uh, 2001. They were um, upgraded from Challenger, uh, Challenger yeah, 1. Well, that's quite old for a tank, isn't it? It's relatively old, um, but in terms of the capabilities that Ukraine currently have, you know, they're fielding 60, 70-year-old Soviet platforms. Yeah. Uh, the majority of their tank fleets are, the majority of their tank fleets are over half a century old. Uh, and again, compared to what they're going to be up against, the Russian capability uh, are, are even worse. Mm. Um, we've already seen reports this week, the fabled T-14 uh, Russian tank has been rejected by frontline service for reliability issues and that's only a few a few of their number that's the next generation mm. Russian tank so compared to what they're going to be up against um, there'll be there'll be absolutely no competition and the final kind of maneuverings if you like of the NATO versus European kind of you know axis has more or less meant that Germany's decision that took such a long time because they were trying to sort of stay outside of NATO, perhaps, um, has kind of blown that all apart, hasn't it? Sure. I, this is the idea of the European Union's uh, strategic autonomy. So it's a it's a directive that's been led by, very much been led by uh, Berlin under mm. uh, Merkel, the previous Chancellor, and Emmanuel Macron. And it's this idea that really Germany and France are going to try and um, work a lot more at the strategic uh, and operational level outside of a NATO framework, mm. be less reliant on the US and, uh, and the UK as its sort of uh, major partner. Um, and the, the, the idea that, yes, Germany have done the right thing by releasing the leopards, but it's taken them a week too long and have succumbed to basically diplomatic pressure from, from Britain, from, mm. from the rest of Europe. And it's completely undermined the EU's strategic autonomy um, direction, the fact that Germany had to wait almost for uh, the US to take the lead on the tanks after the UK did. Yes. So Germany sort of diminished as a result of all of this. Its political credibility is absolutely, uh, it's in the gutter. Yeah, because they're the ones that have got the deals with the Russians and they're still really nervous about this giving up thing. on the energy dependency. This right? is the thing, They've yeah. still got energy coming from there. No, absolutely. I, they, I think they still, uh, they still import a third of their gas yeah. uh, and about uh, a quarter of their oil still from uh, from Russia. Um, the UK have managed to reduce that down to almost zero mm. uh, by the end of last year. So they're still heavily reliant on uh, on German uh, uh, natural energy resources. But I think the, the bigger picture of Germany at the minute, I think, is they're worried 
the German uh, government are worried about future relations with Russia going forward mm. post Ukraine conflict. Now I can understand that it's a pragma- it's a pragmatic realization uh, reality, but I think the here and the now is you can't get to that stage without first mm. the conclu- successful conclusion of the war in Ukraine obviously on the Ukraine side. Do you think it will finish this year? Do you think they've got the wherewithal to do that? I mean, nothing in war is uh, predictable. It's, it's, we can, we, we, we've already seen just how unpredictable this war of all wars mm. has been. Um, personally, uh, I'm going to go on a limb here and I say I don't think it'll be over this year. The political pressure um, for, I, I don't think Europe can really survive a second cold winter uh, with, with, with the war dragging on mm. in that sense. So there will be a lot of political pressure uh, to end the war this year. Um, and ultimately it will come down to uh, uh, to Crimea. Mm. Uh, Crimea is the vital ground in this. It's incredibly important to Russia, sort of uh, Russian identity and Russian uh, ideology. Um, but Ukraine as well have made the case that, you know, Crimea is, is Ukrainian sovereignty and uh, America in particular, and the UK uh, government have uh, advocated for you know Ukraine to push past and retake Crimea. Yeah. I think that's going to be in a very uh, a very sort of tricky situation for Russia to handle. Yeah, well, we'll keep our eyes on it. Rob Clark, thank you very much indeed. Uh, from Civitas, he's the Defence and Security Director, of course. Coming up, uh, we'll take some calls. We've got plenty of you to talk to. A bit of breaking news for you. Transgender woman Isla Bryson, who was convicted of rape, will not be imprisoned in the all-female Cornton Vale prison in Scotland, according to Nicola Sturgeon, who has just told that to the Scottish Parliament. So she must have been listening to us because uh, we were saying that was probably the wrong thing to do. So she will not be in an all-female Cortonville prison in Scotland. Uh, presumably she'll be going to a male one. This is talk- Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.